0: Jeremiah chapter 36, it says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to these days or to this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, I am confined. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction The words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people and Baruch. The son of Nariah did according to all that Jeremiah, the prophet commanded him reading from the book, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. When Mahiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book. He then went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting. Elishama, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Achbor, Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi, the son of Netaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi to Baruch, saying, take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them and they said to him, sit down now and read it in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? So Baruch answered them. He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me. And I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. In the book of Jeremiah, we discover why discipline And why education and why religion cannot produce a godly life. We also learn how sin corrupts, erodes, how it defaces the human heart. But we also learn how God can cleanse the human heart with repentance comes cleansing and the promise of friendship and fellowship with God. We now come to a new division. In the book of Jeremiah. We're given a picture of a wicked king's attempt to destroy God's word. And we're also given a vision, a picture, if you will, into how God will preserve his word. And so in this chapter, we are told about the inspiration of the word in verses one through four, the proclamation of the word in verses five through ten. And then the preservation of the word In verse 11 through 19, but that theme of preservation will continue all the way to the end of the chapter. And so it begins with the inspiration of the word. Look at verse 1 again. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, The fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim calculates to 604 B.C. The events take place 20 years after Jeremiah has begun his preaching ministry. Jeremiah has been at it, preaching the word of God, warning the people, encouraging the To turn from their sin and to rely on the Lord. Egypt has been badly beaten by Babylon. Jehoiakim's foreign policy has come to utter ruins. Uh, Jehoiakim trusted that Egypt would be able to keep Babylon at bay. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with history, Josiah is Jehoiakim's father. After the death of Josiah at Carchemish, his second son Becomes the king, but reigns only for a few months, sort of as a puppet ruler, is removed by the king of Babylon. And then the king of Egypt establishes Jehoiakim as the ruler in Judah and Jerusalem. So he's sort of like a puppet ruler and he's dependent upon Egypt. So he's trusting that Egypt will keep Babylon at bay. God has already told Jeremiah that Babylon will one day occupy Judah, destroy Jerusalem, destroy or enslave the inhabitants. And so Jeremiah continues to minister. Even though the situation seems hopeless. I want you to just think about that for a moment. I want you to pause in your brain. And ask yourself this question. What makes a person continue to minister when the situation seems hopeless? What causes a person to say, look. I am going to continue to share Christ, or I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to, to to minister. I'm going to 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 continue, even though it looks hopeless and helpless. Even though whether you're dealing with AIDS orphans, or whether you're dealing with people under difficult circumstances. Let's say you're dealing with drug and alcoholic. Um, addicted people, let's say you're dealing with people who no matter how much time you spend with them, no matter how many times you open up the Bible, no matter how many times you pray with them, no matter how many times you wake up and you minister to them, it just seems like it's an empty, empty, hopeless, difficult, impossible situation. Why do you keep doing it? Why would you go forward? Jeremiah has a vision from God. He has a plan and a purpose that God has appointed for him. And he walks in that. He understands that his life and his ministry... Isn't based on how other people respond to his ministry, but rather with the charge and the stewardship that God has entrusted to him. And so in verse two, he says, take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel, against Judah and against all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Take a scroll of a book in the Hebrew Megaloth, sefer, literally scroll of a book. The phrase is rare in in the Hebrew Bible. The concept of pages in a book attached to a spine isn't. What's happening, that whole idea of a book isn't going to take place for hundreds of years. A scroll was a long sheet of writing material wrapped around two sticks, rolled from one end to the other. Documents of importance like a will or a deed or a transaction or a legal document would have been written on parchment. This scroll isn't on parchment. We know that because later on in the chapter, the king is going to take his penknife and he's going to cut up the fragments, the, the leaves of the scroll, and he's going to toss them into the fire. Up until now, the ministry of Jeremiah has been preaching. He's been preaching the message of God, but according to the chapter, he has been banned from the temple. He has, it's sort of, Looks like a situation where at one point he was imprisoned, and at another point he's been banned from preaching. And what seems like a horrible situation is going to actually turn out to be a wonderful situation. Because his preaching ministry is now going to turn into a writing ministry which will stand the test of time. Some of you are familiar with people. Who have had similar circumstances. John Bunyan. Many of you are familiar. Who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was an unlicensed preacher. And in England you had to have a license in order to preach. And because he was an unlicensed preacher. He said the government doesn't determine who preaches. God is the person who determines who preaches. He refuses to get a license. And he preaches. And they stick him in prison. And he writes Pilgrim's Progress. Other than the Bible, one of the most popular books that have ever been written. And so now God calls Jeremiah to publish his prophecies. And why is this going to be important? Most of you already know the answer. Within a couple of generations, there's going to be a young man in Babylon who's going to pour over the scroll of Jeremiah. His name is Daniel. He's going to read about the prophecies and he's going to read about the promises and he's going to get great hope from the prophecies and the promises in the book of Jeremiah. The Lord first spoke to Jeremiah in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah. Now, I want you to just think about this for just a moment. That's 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Josiah was a good king of Judah and Jerusalem. When Josiah took the throne, there must have been this collective sigh of relief. Before the rule of Josiah, the people of Jerusalem and Judah experienced the crushing weight of the wicked king Manasseh, perhaps the most wicked and cruel king to ever sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And Manasseh loved idols and idolatry. He didn't just love it. He promoted it. This is the king who Burned his children in the fire. There's a tradition that Manasseh executed the prophet Isaiah by cutting him in half with a saw. And don't think of a metal saw. It would have been a piece of board with, with teeth cut into it. It would have been a wooden saw. Manasseh reigned for 55 years. There was so little interest in the things of God, the promises of God, the word of God, that people hadn't even heard about the Bible or read the Bible for generations. The book of the law had become lost in the temple. And you'll remember when Josiah becomes the king, the book of the law is rediscovered. The king asked that the book be read to him. And when he heard the Bible being read, when he heard Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and numbers and Deuteronomy being read, he tore his clothes. And this was an act of humility and repentance and regret. And the king said, in effect, we have ignored God's word. We've neglected God's command. We have ignored his word and his command and his promises. The way we're living isn't the way that God intended us to live. we're supposed to be the people of God, and yet we're living the same exact lifestyle as everyone around us. And so Josiah launched this incredible reformation movement to turn the nation around. The king went personally. Personally. From village to village and city to city and he tore down the idols and he tore down the pagan places of worship. He supervised the tearing down of the worship sites. Josiah reinstated the feast of the Passover and I need you to understand something. It had been forgotten and it had been ignored and it had been neglected during the reign of Manasseh. And he called on the people to return to the true and living God. And you can find that out in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. Jeremiah's ministry began during this moral and cultural revolution. And it was through Jeremiah that the Lord spoke to the people and said in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 10. Judah did not return to me with all of her heart, but only in pretense declares the Lord. Now, I want you to think this through. Josiah encouraged the people to read God's word, understand God's law, obey God's commands, walk in God's promises. There was a cultural, moral, political, social upheaval. But the people's hearts didn't change. It was like going from one election cycle to the next election cycle. Jehoiakim took over his father's throne. And he went in exactly the opposite direction. As enthusiastic as Josiah was for the things of God, Jehoiakim was enthusiastic about the things that had nothing to do with God. And so we're four years into the current administration. In verse 1. The Lord told Jeremiah to write the word of God on a scroll. And it was read to Jehoiakim as he's sitting... In a king's chamber later on, we're going to discover at the end of the chapter, the king is in his chamber. There's a fire that's stoked in, in, in the dead of winter and Jehoiakim asks his secretary to read the scroll. And when he got through about four columns of the book of Jeremiah, he took a penknife and he took the pages and he tossed them into the fire and then he asked to read some more and then he threw some more into the fire and then he asked to read some more and then he threw what was left of the book into the fire. Just like people who read the book of Jeremiah now. I hate this book. It's always talking about condemnation and judgment. It's constantly asking me to turn from my sin and turn to God. It's such a downer. And Jehoiakim thinks that he can get rid of the word of God by tossing it into the fire. And we're going to have more to say about that as we continue in the chapter. Jeremiah prophesies during both reigns of both kings. Jeremiah witnesses the outward changes among the people during the reign of Josiah. But how the Bible itself didn't touch their heart. And with the next king will appear an opposite reaction if the massive moral crusade can't change the people's heart. If having a different administration can't change the people's heart. If people neglect social, cultural, political changes that will say, hey, let's exalt righteousness rather than wickedness. But people's heart are hopelessly addicted to that which is wicked. Jeremiah is frustrated. Because he's thinking, well, if the government can't change people's heart and social institutions can't change people's heart and the cultural climate won't change people's heart, what will change people's heart? And can you imagine the hope that fills Jeremiah's heart when he hears from the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33? This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I'll put my law in their mind and I will write it in their hearts. Jeremiah gets this window of hope and he goes, look, can people ever change? Has anyone ever said to you, you'll never change? Maybe you've even said it to yourself. Oh, God, I seem to think the same thoughts and I seem to do the same things and I seem to watch the same things and I seem to involve myself in all of the same things. What will change my heart? What will change my heart? What will give me a new life? What will give me a new start? What will provide for me a new direction? And the Bible promises a new heart and a new beginning in the person of Jesus Christ. In this passage, we learn some Bible basics. In verse 3, it says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Do you understand part of the point of the passage and the writing down of the prophecy isn't to condemn people. It's in the hopes that If you really understood how God felt about this, would you be willing to change? If you really understood the heart of God and the mind of God in this matter of sin, how it can be confessed, how it can be forgiven, how you can turn from it, how you can experience joy and forgiveness and freedom and redemption, wouldn't you want to go for it? And so it says in verse four, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. This gives us a clue, at least how the book of Jeremiah was composed. Baruch wrote down the revelation of God. Now, remember what the revelation of God is. Truths about God, truths about the nature of man, truths about the condition of human beings, truths about the future. The Bible is God's revelation to man about God, about our sinful condition and God's remedy. These are the truths that cannot be accessed apart from the revelation of God. In other words, a person born on the planet Earth with nothing to go on but the bright blue sky and the brown Earth beneath him or her. As you look up at the stars, as you evaluate the planet on which you are living and you begin to ask and answer the questions, how did all of this get here? Why is it here? How are we to explain our presence on the planet? How do I explain the fact that I have a brain and that I have a heart and that I have a moral compass? How am I to explain our ability to communicate with one another? How am I to explain the sinful circumstances that I see all around me? How am I to explain the presence of death? How can I explain what happens when you die? Unless you have the revelation of God, you are going to be in big trouble. It requires a divine communication from the mind and the heart of God. And this is why the New Testament says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus shows up and gives us an accurate understanding about what kind of a God God is and what kind of a peril that we face. The Bible is a divine communication from the mind and the heart of God to the mind and the heart of mankind. That's called inspiration. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, inspiration is the word used to describe how the Bible was written. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, says Second Timothy 3.16. This means God breathed. It's not the manufactured product of the human mind holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's recorded in second Peter chapter one, verse 21. The world speaks of great writers as being inspired, but this is not what the Bible means by inspiration. Shakespeare was an inspired writer in the human sense of greatness, but his writings were not inspired of God as in the Bible. The spirit of God spoke to and through men of God to give us the word of God. He did not bypass their persecution personalities or make robots out of them. Each Bible writer reveals his own individual personality in the writings. But when they wrote, but what they wrote is the word of God. Final, complete, authoritative. You can trust your Bible, unquote. He's right. So many people will say, oh, it's just a book. And after all, it was written by men. No, it's not just a book. It's the most extraordinary book that's been ever, that's ever appeared on the planet Earth. And so he gives the proclamation of the word. Look what it says in verse five. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I'm confined. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. At this point, Jeremiah seems to be bound. It could be that he was incarcerated. It could be that he is on temple timeout. He's been banned from the temple precinct. Can you imagine the Jewish prophet Jeremiah? You're not welcome here. You can't come to Jerusalem. You can't come to the temple. And you can't preach the word of God. Think about it just for a moment. Jeremiah is forbidden from entering the temple precinct. He's going to be released clearly by the end of the chapter in order to hide from the king. But here's the important thing. Even though Jeremiah is bound. The word of God is not bound. Do you ever get frustrated? Because you want to tell your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your friend, your boss about the Bible. But you feel bound. You feel restricted. Well, if I talk to him about Jesus, I could lose my job. If I talk to my friend about Jesus, he might hate me. If I, the person has already told me, don't talk to me about Jesus. Just keep your mouth shut. There's all of these prohibitions and restrictions. My children are sent to school and they can't pray. So long as there's tests, there will always be prayer in school kids are going to just oh lord you god you got to help me with this math assignment you can't restrict something like that they may be bound but the word of god is not bound is it the word of god can make its way into africa and australia antarctica even though It might seem like there's a prohibition or a restriction. Have you ever prayed for someone and say, Lord, for whatever reason, the door seems closed for me to get the gospel to this particular person. But Lord, you can do it. I can remember all the awkward times that I tried to share Christ with my father. And how it just seemed like a closed door and a closed door. And after the hurricane Katrina hit, my father um, had to make his way through Mississippi up to Tennessee and Chattanooga to join up with my family over there. And my father would go to Starbucks and he would get a cup of coffee in the morning. And there was a seminary student from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary who because the place was flooded and he school was canceled and he too was forced to go to Chattanooga and um, he started talking to my dad. And my father's a very outgoing guy. I know, this might come as a shock to you, but I'm the shy one in the family. And so my father would ask this, Hey what you doing here? He says, I'm a seminary student and you know, I, I study the Bible. and when the hurricane hit, you know, we all had to leave. You're a preacher. Yeah, and my son's a preacher. And so it opened up a door for a friendship and a relationship. And day after day and week after week, this young man named Frank formed a friendship with my father. So that towards the closing months of his life, he was able to pray with my Father to receive Christ. The Word of God is not bound by whatever restrictions and limitations. That you have. It can go places and penetrate even the most distant lands and dark hearts. And look what it says in verse 6. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of the fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all of Judah who come from their cities. Jeremiah is in effect saying, I can't go and tell them the message of God. But Baruch, you can go. And in order for us to make sure that the message is not misunderstood, we're going to write it down and we're going to repeat it word for word, just like it came from the lips of God. Now, we're not sure if Jeremiah is asking to read the scroll twice, once in the temple and once outside of the temple. He says, in the hearing of all Judah who come from the cities, it may mean once in the hearing of all. That is, all of the sum and the substance of the cities gather together in the temple and they begin to hear. Now, it would appear that the day of fasting is a special day that is either set aside by the leaders or the king to appeal to God to help them against Babylon. We're not told for certain. It may be that some of the people petitioned the king. But clearly the king doesn't regard God and he doesn't regard the word of God. Some scholars believe that the king calls for this fast. When the Babylonian army captures Ashkelon, which is some 45 miles away, Judah is forced to make a decision to trade one superpower, Egypt, for another superpower, Babylon, By the way, archaeologists have uncovered letters from the king of Ashkelon to the pharaoh of Egypt describing the conditions of the attack. This letter was translated by an archaeologist named Ginsberg, and it reads in part, I have written to my lord. This is the king of Ashkelon writing to the pharaoh of Egypt. I have written to my lord to inform thee that the troops of the king of Babylon have advanced as far as Aphek. Pharaoh knows that thy servant cannot stand alone against the king of Babylon. May it therefore please him to send a force to succor me. That means comfort me or provide assistance or aid for me. For thy servant is loyal to my Lord and thy servant remembers his kindness. And this region is my Lord's possession, unquote. In other words, that's part of the fragment that was found. Again, confirming archaeologically that the events that are taking place historically In the Bible are real. This is not some sort of myth. And so it could very well be that the king says we're going to have a day of fasting and prayer. Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to pray. That God will destroy the Babylonian army and preserve our safety. But you know what? This king has no intention of listening to the word of God. The prophecy of God. The promises of God. This king has no intention of repenting. Turning from sin. And turning to the Lord. You know, tomorrow is the national day of prayer. It's the day when people go to their knees. But there's two kinds of prayer that's going to take place tomorrow. There's going to be a kind of politicizing prayer. Where politicians will gather with other people, with so-called people of faith, but they're not interested in really praying to God because they will ignore, they will neglect, they will disregard God's word throughout the rest of the year. If we think that we can have a national day of prayer as some sort of religious symbolism, it won't be effective. People will have to fundamentally, from their heart, cry out to God and say, our wickedness is inexcusable. And our plan to ignore, reject, suspend God from every aspect of our life is not going to go without consequences. If there's going to be a fundamental change, if there's going to be a fundamental change that takes place, it is going to have to take place in the hearts of individuals as they say, you know what, Lord, in order for this world to be a different world, in order for our country to be a different kind of a country, I'm going to have to be a different kind of a person. I'm going to have to be a man or a woman who truly refuses To no longer ignore, neglect or disregard the word of God. And so there's no value in a day of fasting and prayer when that day in fasting and prayer goes against everything that God (laughs) intends to accomplish. Look what it says in verse seven. It may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of the Lord that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And so Jeremiah holds out hope. Hey, look, all of the people are going to gather. They're going to fast and pray. You read the promise of God and also the word of God in the hopes that they will hear and turn And in verse eight, it says "And Baruch, the son of Nariah did according to all that Jeremiah, the prophet commanded him reading from the book, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Baruch reads the word of the Lord, the prophecies of Jeremiah to the fasting people in the temple. For those of you who've been with me. Think. Jeremiah chapter one, Jeremiah chapter two, Jeremiah chapter three. Jeremiah chapter 4, all the way to chapter 10, to chapter 12, to chapter 20. But they're doing it all in a single afternoon. And he reads it to them. It may seem odd to you that God has ordained that his word should be spread through something as seemingly stupid As preaching and teaching. But God has taken the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God uses something as simple as preaching. Someone opening their mouth saying, God loves you. Sin can be forgiven. Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know what the difference between preaching and teaching is? Teaching is when you impart information. Preaching is when you urge people to do with the information something that you don't just get the instruction, but you get something that gives you something to do. We live in a culture that for the most part disregards preaching and the teaching of the Bible. Sometimes when I travel or fly on an airplane and people ask what I do, if I don't really want to talk to them, I'll just look at them and say, I'm the pastor of a church. Because I know nobody's going to want to talk to me. And if I really don't want to talk to them, I say, I'm the pastor of a Bible-believing, devil-stomping, tongue-talking, fundamentalist church. And then it's like, But if people want to talk to me after that, well, then God bless them. God uses the Word of God to convict people of sin. God uses the Word of God to lead people to honest repentance and then to bring them the assurance of salvation. Sometimes someone will whisper in your ear, and it's not God and it's not the Holy Spirit, it's the devil. The devil will whisper in your ear, it's no use. You might as well shut up and whatever you do, don't talk to him about Jesus. But there is no other name given under heaven whereby people must be saved. And when you least expect it, the Lord will move on your heart. And you'll be invited to speak to this person and say to them. Let me just ask you something about the condition of your soul. What's going on inside of your heart? How would you characterize your relationship with God right now? Baruch was seeking to warn Judah to flee from sin. But remember, when Baruch is reading the words of Jeremiah and he's encouraging the people to flee from sin, he's not just simply telling them to make a run for it. He's telling them to run into the arms of a merciful God who's willing to forgive them. And the same is true today. We want to turn Jesus Turn people to Jesus since the wrath of God already abides, you know, the most famous verse in all of the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And remember the very next verse for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Each person apart from Christ is, has already a death sentence written across the surface of their heart. It's like a special package delivery. It's as if every single human being's soul is stamped spiritually with a mark. Send to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And the only way that that seal is going to be broken Is if a person understands, hey, there's the possibility that we can reroute your package. It's by coming into a right relationship with God and Christ. And so in verse nine, look what it says. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. If we compare verse one with verse nine, we get the impression that the writing of this scroll took place over a period of a year. So Jeremiah with Baruch begins to sit down and and begins to compile the scroll. And then in verse 10, it says, then Baruch read from the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of the people. By the way, the word Gamariah or the name means the Lord has accomplished and he's another son of Shaphan. And remember, Josiah's prime minister in 2 Kings chapter 22 verse 3 was the son of Shaphan the sons of Shaphan were quite distinguished in other words this is a family of political people who are of the utmost importance as a matter of fact one of these sons is the very Grandfather of the person who is going to receive the scroll when it's recovered from the temple, and he is going to read the scroll to Josiah, and he's going to tear his garments, and he's going to turn to the Lord in humility and repentance. This is going to be important in just a moment. Another son, Shaphan, Jazaniah, is mentioned. And so this so Ahiakim was mentioned earlier in chapter 26 and in chapter 39, verse 14, Elissa is mentioned in chapter 29, verse three. Another son, Jazaniah, is mentioned with disrespect in Ezekiel, chapter eight, verse 11, although Gamaria was a secretary, verse 12. It indicates that he didn't hold his father's high office and he must have been friendly to Jeremiah to allow the use of the room. And since this was such a sensitive and controversial issue, so. In verse 11, it says, uh, we go to the preservation of the word when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book. Now, when you get these names, sometimes it becomes difficult because you're looking at the names and you're going, how do you pronounce that name? What is the Hebrew meaning of that name? What am I to think about this name? And all of that is interesting. But the most important thing for you to remember about this text at this very moment isn't simply how to pronounce the name or even the Hebrew meaning of the name. I'm going to suggest to you that the most important thing for you to ask the text is how did these people respond to the word of God? It would appear that Baruch is he's reading it. He reads the scroll. We're not told that the that the crowds respond. We're not told even exactly how the, the political leaders respond. A large crowd gathers. They appear. It says in verse 12, then he went down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber. Then all the princes were sitting. Elishama, the scribe, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, El Natan, the son of Achbor, Gamaria, the son of and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah. and all the princes. These are the people in high government. These are the movers and the shakers, the politically important people. Then Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. What are we left with? Micaiah declares to them all the words that he heard. We're left with the impression that Micaiah is stirred. He hears the message. He hears Baruch speak the words of Jeremiah and his heart is stirred. Micaiah's grandfather was the servant and secretary to Josiah who reads the scroll of the book to the past king and he is stirred. And he immediately shares... The information with the leaders of the nation. They send for Baruch a second time to read the scroll. Verse 14. Therefore, all the princes sent Jehudi, which is a word that means the man from Judah, the son of Netaniah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, which means a person who's from Cush to Baruch saying, take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people and come. So Baruch, the son of Nariah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them and they said to him. Sit down now. Now, that might just you might overlook that if, you, if you're not reading with sensitivity to the text. But the moment that these leaders say, sit down now and read it in our hearing, it's really a courtesy. They're giving him honor and respect. We need you to sit down and we need you to read the scroll once again to us. So Baruch read it in their hearing. It says, now it happened when they heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely tell the king all these words. What's their response? Fear? Are they afraid for the nation? Are they afraid for the king? Are they afraid for the future? We might think that they're supportive of Jeremiah. And even though they're hearing the words and they're asking and answering the question. The king hates Jeremiah. These words seem to be the word of the Lord. If this is God's word and if this is God's instruction, what are we supposed to do with this instruction? And so in verse 17, they ask Baruch saying, tell us now, how did you write all these words at his instruction? Now, remember, the king hates <laughs> Jeremiah. So Baruch answers him. He proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them down with ink in the book. Then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. Uh Uh-oh. Why? We're going to have to put both you and Jeremiah into the witness protection program. Why? Why? Because it's not going to be received. Three officials will urge the king later on not to burn the scroll, but to no avail. The king will give no indication whatsoever that he's repenting. But it it should cause you to ask another important question. Josiah hears the word and responds and repents. And takes up the leadership so that the nation can go in a different direction and Jehoiakim will hear the word of God and he will rip the page right out of the scroll and he will toss it into the fire. What is it about this Bible? What is it about this Bible that one person will hear it and respond and another person will hear it and they'll go nonsense. What is it about this Bible that some people will hear it and believe it and others will hear it and they might be stirred and they might even be emotionally motivated, but they continue to live their life exactly the same way that they used to. I read a little ditty. Ma, I found an old dusty thing high upon the shelf. Just look. Why, that's a Bible, Tommy, dear. Be careful. That's God's book. God's book, the young one said. Then, Ma, before we lose it, we'd better send it back to God. Because you know we'll never use it. For many people, the Bible along with all the classics, gathers dust on the shelf. You might go to your mothers, your fathers, your brothers, your sisters, your neighbor, your friend. Hey, I noticed you have a Bible. Yeah, but we never read it. Well, why do you have it? Because everybody has one. I mean, everyone should know something about the Bible. Do you believe it? Oh, no, not even for a minute. What is it about this book? That it divides people so completely. That it challenges so intensely. Earlier this week, I was on a radio program and a person was interviewing me about a a person who made a bunch of unfortunate statements About the ridiculousness of people who believe the Bible. And the talk show host said to me. What do you think about that? And I said it it makes perfect sense to me that this person who happened to be a homosexual and who was promoting the homosexual lifestyle would attack and impugn the Bible because the Bible condemns his behavior and condemns his lifestyle. But I said, I need to point something else out to you that there's, it's one thing to doubt the prohibitions that are given into the Bible. But guess what? The moment that you doubt the prohibitions or deny the prohibitions, the moment that you say, I can't believe this, I can't believe that I can't believe this. And I can't believe that you're also tossing out all of the promises you see the Bible isn't just about prohibitions of behavior the Bible is a book about how you can experience forgiveness of sin and the love of God and the promise of a future so if you deny the Bible and its prohibitions almost certainly you will deny the Bible and its promises do you know why I believe Genesis chapter 1? And do you know why I believe Deuteronomy chapter 18? And do you know why I believe Jeremiah 36? And do you know why I believe John chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 9 and all the way to Revelation chapter 22? Because of the promises. If the Bible's true in the beginning... Almost certainly it's going to be true in the middle and it's going to be true in the end. The Bible's true. That Jesus loves you and that he forgives you and that you can be reconciled to God. The Bible is true that you can experience forgiveness and hope. The Bible is true that you can experience redemption and reconciliation to God. And if that's not true, then why Go through the facade of having a Bible study. I believe it all. I love it all. I like even the table of contents and the maps. (laughs) We're going to have communion in just a moment. And I just have one request. And that is that you all. Partake together. What I want you to do is just hold the elements of communion until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for the Word of God and the Word made flesh. Lord, it makes perfect sense to me that people will question and they will wonder. Lord, I question and I wonder. I want to know why things are the way that they are. But Lord, I thank you that the Bible is true and complete, trustworthy and reliable. It's true in its inspiration. It's true in its proclamation. It's true in its preservation. And Lord, we thank you that you've handed down through history a document that we can trust. That really does contain the revelation of God. It accurately communicates the problem of sin. And the solution being Jesus. And so Lord I pray for that person who. Wants encouragement. Lord I pray that when they open up their Bible. And they allow it to speak to their hearts. That, Lord, they will find a fundamental source, not only of inspiration, but the very source of transformation. A change of heart. A change of life. A change of direction. So prepare our hearts, Lord, as we prepare for communion. In Jesus' name, amen.